Hi, my name is Chester Elton, author of Leading with Gratitude, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Chester Elton. Chester has spent two decades helping some of the world's most successful businesses engage their employees to execute on strategy, vision, and values. His work is supported by research with more than 150,000 working adults, revealing the proven secrets behind high-performance cultures and teams. Listeners, if Chester Elton's name rings a bell, it's because he was a guest on episode 315 when he shared insights from his book, Anxiety at Work, which is his 14th book in collaboration with his business partner, Adrian The books have been translated to more than 30 languages and sold more than 1.5 million copies worldwide. Chester is often quoted in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, and the New York Times. He's appeared on NBC's Today, CNN, ABC, MSNBC, National Public Radio, and so many more, as well as being a multiple guest on My Quest for the Best, which I'm sure he's most proud of. Chester lives in Summit, New Jersey, and is here to talk about his book, Leading with Gratitude, Eight Leadership Practices for Extraordinary Business results. Welcome, Chester. Thanks so much, Bill. Always a pleasure to be with you. Delighted to be a repeat guest. <laughs> We're going to start making jackets like they do on SNL. When you get to five, we'll send you a jacket. <laughs> there you go. That's a deal. So, Chester, what is a quote that guides or inspires you these days? It's a really interesting quote from Russell M. Nelson. He says, counting your blessings is far better than recounting your problems. No matter our situation, showing gratitude for our privileges is a unique, fast-acting, and long-lasting spiritual prescription. I just love that. Counting our blessings is far better than recounting our problems. Words to live by. Yeah. And when people do that, not just superficially, but actually concretely thinking about what we have to be grateful for, everything from the challenges in front of us, the things that we've accomplished and learned, the people who've helped us along the way, it really makes a difference. Where do you think that quote doesn't help people as much? Is it because they don't fully engage in it? Or what is it from your perspective that people don't light up when they hear that? It's interesting. In our work, you know, we look at all different facets. We look at engagement surveys. Uh, We have a motivational assessment that we have deployed. And it's really interesting. We look at the brain. Why is it that some people are just happy and some people not? Well, we've discovered, and this is backed up by neuroscience, that, you know, your brain isn't wired to keep you happy. It's wired to keep you safe. That's why the negativity is so prevalent. It's why we react so well to negative political ads. We're looking for danger everywhere. When you go to reprogram your brain, you say, okay, look, I can't be in a state of gratitude and a state of anxiety or a state of fear at the same time. So by counting our blessings, it relaxes your brain. It gives you a chance to look at the positives, eliminate the negative, uh, latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. That was my dad's favorite song, by the way. <laughs> I love that practice. Take a deep breath, think all is well, and just start counting your blessings. I love the way you express that because it does satisfy the brain's overriding prime directive, which is to keep us safe. Oh, look, let's notice that we're safe here. Let's notice that 
we're making important decisions, yet it's not life-threatening. We can be inclusive. It's not going to hurt our status or it can actually help us to be more encouraging and inclusive with others. Exactly. In our book, Leading with Gratitude, and thank you for letting me share bits and pieces with your audience. One of my favorite chapters is Assume Positive Intent. Again, that's the opposite of Assume Negative Intent. Indra Noe, the past CEO of Pepsi, was one of the leaders that we interviewed. And she said, you know, when you assume positive intent, everything changes. It's all about solving the problem. When you assume negative intent, it's so easy to get angry. It's so easy to get upset. Alan Mulally, the guy that saved the Ford Motor Company, said, look, business is all about people. It's about loving them up. You have a problem. They are not the problem. And I love that. You have a problem. You are not the problem. Let's solve the problem. It's such a wonderful way to approach business. I also appreciate that because it helps us put the problem out there, not at the person we're talking with. I think even on Zoom calls and other types of video conferences, we're looking at people as we're describing the problem. And if people forget to describe and associate the people we're working with as helping us get to the solution rather than just focusing on the problem, I think we're missing something. I think that we're not firing on all cylinders. Would you agree with that? That's so powerful. And it really underscores how much gratitude is a perspective and a choice that real leaders exercise and then create the environment where others follow and then propagate it on their own. Speak more about how that's important to exercise consciously because often there isn't support for it in many organizations. That's true. We often say in our executive coaching, control what you can control, right? Don't worry so much about the big stuff that you have little or no input and nobody's asking you anyway, right? Control what you can control. So you've got to set that, like you say, set the example as the leader. Make sure that your actions match your words. If you talk about creating a, a culture of positive intent, then model that behavior. One thing I want to talk about, and maybe I can ask you a quick question, Bill. Do you find that sometimes as you're coaching people up to be more appreciative, be more grateful, that there's a little pushback because they're afraid that they'll come across as a soft leader, someone people can take advantage of? Does that happen with you? I've certainly had examples where people express that fear. And it's an anxiety. It's never tested. But it's something that they use as a justification in their mind. What was fascinating as we did the research for the book, we got to talk to Indra Noe. We got to talk to Alan Mulally. We got to talk to Ken Chenault. Now, Ken Chenault had just retired from being the CEO of American Express phenomenal run as a CEO. He just retired. We were talking to him at his new office with all his foundations and everything. And he said, you know, it's such a misconception. It's such a myth that grateful leaders are soft. He says, you can be very demanding and very genuine and grateful at the same time. Alan Mulally said the same thing in in the book that was written about him called American Icon, how Alan Mulally saved the Ford Motor Company. The reporter who wrote the book said, Alan Mulally has a spine of titanium. Nobody's taken advantage of Alan. You can be very demanding and very grateful and appreciative. And they would they would show it in that they held people. Sometimes it was a very simple method. Alan Mulally would say, look, if your project is on track, it's green. If you're, if you're behind, it's yellow. If you're red, you're stuck. And if it's red or yellow, we're going to rally to help you solve those problems. Just be honest with us, you know? And when people would put up red squares, he would applaud. He'd thank them for their courage. And then he'd say, okay, how do we solve this problem? So if you're listening out there and thinking, oh yeah, 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 this is the soft stuff. This is the nice to have. Absolutely not. This is a must-have, and this is a hard skill because people are hard, and I know you agree with that. I hope that some people listening to this, Chester, will make it sort of a monthly award. Who showed the most courage and strength? Who helped make our organization stronger by showing the best appreciation? Because appreciation is a perspective, like we said. It's a choice, 
And it's also a skill, isn't it? Because people can hear appreciation and it's easy to brush off when it's generalized. Hey, way to go. Everyone on the team did a great job. That's not terribly effective, is it? We have a saying that general praise has no impact. With all the anxiety, it's often pushed out the role and importance of gratitude. Could you talk about what gratitude is, how we need to examine it and bring it in to, to counter the anxiety that's going on, and what the right role of gratitude is for companies that are looking to bring their teams together to operate more effectively and cohesively? A great question. And I just finished our 14th book, Anxiety at Work. And we had eight strategies on how you deal with uncertainty and all that's going on. You know, the, that this pandemic has dragged on so long, no one thought it was going to last this long. And I think people are just overwhelmed, they're exhausted, and they're looking for a little joy. Well, interestingly enough, the eighth strategy in, in our book was to use gratitude. I've talked before that the human mind isn't, isn't built to keep you happy. It's built to keep you safe. And so we look for danger. We look for all those things that are going wrong. We look for the negativity. It's why, you know, it's why negative news impacts us much more dramatically than positive news. Is that realization surprising to people when you share that with other managers and leaders and organizations that our brain is designed to keep us safe, not to make us happy? I think it is an aha moment for a lot of people because that realization is like, oh, that's why. <laughs> that's why I'm kind of grumpy more often than I'm happy. So anyway, to mitigate all of that, one of the practices that we share, one of the strategies is be grateful for what you have and, and don't worry so much about what you don't have. Let's count our blessings. Let's not count those things, uh, those problems in our lives. And it is it is very true that you can, you cannot be in a state of gratitude and a state of anxiety at the same time. So choose gratitude, uh, put together some certain rituals that then pull you back from that negativity that's so easily found all around us. Does that make sense? It does. Now, when you say you can't be in a state of gratitude and a state of anxiety at the same time, is that just your personal observation or have you actually found research to support that so that people could say this with more authority when they share it with their colleagues? Adrian and I delve into all kinds of research and all kinds of studies. And it is a fact when you talk to neurologists, you, you can't hold two emotions at the same time. You can't be anxious and fearful. You can't be angry and happy. It's one or the other. We do have the power to choose. And I think that's really important that we can choose our reaction to things. We can choose how we respond. And if we can put enough rituals, and I'm a big fan of rituals in our life to keep us on track, we, we can pull ourselves back from that uncertainty and that unhappiness and, and choose gratitude. That's really interesting. The other idea that comes from leading with gratitude that I think is important is that this isn't the first time we've encountered a difficulty that was so pervasive. I mean, even in 2008 with the financial crisis, people were in strife, there was a great deal of uncertainty, and there was financial hardship all around. And in, in the midst of that, companies responded differently. You mentioned in the book how WD-40 led by Gary Ridge, responded differently. Can you share a little bit about what you've learned? Because you've actually had a chance to work with them and meet Gary and interview him about his perspectives and get some of the inside scoop. A great leader. Gary and I have actually become dear friends. I'll be with him in about a, just over a week in uh, San Diego. Delightful Aussie living in San Diego. What's there not to love about Aussies? I, I tell people they're the Canadians of Asia, right? Everybody loves the Canadians. Everybody loves the Aussies. He has created a remarkable culture called a tribal culture. It, we're not co-workers associated 
associates, teammates, we're tribe members. The reason being is it goes deeper. In a tribe, we defend each other, we protect each other, we cheer for each other. And in that spirit of that culture, in the last recession, he started to go to his various facilities and people kept asking him, Gary, are you okay? And he'd say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, Gary's philosophy of life is it'll all work out, right? And uh, he said, but they kept asking me and kept asking me. So finally, I, I got back to the hotel and I called my wife and I said, honey, do I give off a sick vibe? Like, do I look unwell? And she said, Gary, they're not asking, are you okay? They're asking, are we okay? As a company, are we okay? And then one of the great lines in the book, he says, well, I decided let's not waste a good crisis. Everywhere people are going, they're going to hear about the, the horror, the bad news. When they come to WD-40, I want them to hear about. And so he invested in the money that they had in, in more research, in people development. When the recession ended in 2010, they were in great shape. In fact, in, the, in his tenure as CEO, they've gone from a a $250 million, basically American-based company to a global brand worth well over $3 billion. When you look at the power of gratitude, when you do put people first, when you do look at what you can control, when you choose the positive and eliminate the negative, really good things can happen, not just for you personally, also for your company's bottom line. It's a fascinating case study. What are some of the techniques that they used or the, the secrets to their success that made it so that it didn't just come from Gary and people only felt good when they were on Gary? But I imagine, and in the book you described, how it really filtered down. It became something where people just didn't want to look for it from the top, but they looked for it from their colleagues. What helped that company make that shift so that people listening can employ that same type of approach in their own organizations? Well, Gary is very empowered and their values are, are very interesting. You know, their first values, he said after that one, if, if you're not doing that one, none of the other values, you know, make sense. And he does talk about the fact that uh, at WD-40, they, they don't make mistakes. They have learning moments. In fact, very few people know what WD-40 stands for. And I always find it fascinating that it stands for water displacement, 40th formula. It's they, kind of like Edison didn't get it right the first time. He did 10,000 times of trying to get the filament right in the electric light bulb. The same way here with WD-40, they didn't get it right for 39 times, but they stuck with it. Is that kind of the same idea? Exactly the same idea. The, the, it's a learning process. You know, in our in our book, Leading or Anxiety at Work, we brought in um, Adrian's son, Anthony, to give us a millennial perspective. And he's a scientist. He does a lot of lab work and so on. And he said, science is just failure with notes. <laughs> and what do you learn from those failures? So they didn't make 39 mistakes. They had 39 learning moments to get to that 40th formula. Well, that's very pervasive, WD-40. Don't worry about the mistakes. What did we learn from that? And how do we build on that? That's very much a part of their culture. What you can imagine, that takes a lot of anxiety and stress out of the workplace. When I make a mistake, I'm not afraid to talk about it. I'm not afraid to tell my supervisors about it. And I'm eager to see what can I learn to move forward. I imagine you've shared that idea of reframing framing mistakes and screw-ups as learning moments to other organizations. What is it that helps people embrace that, especially if they maybe have one person who says, oh, you're just trying to do that to not be criticized or to keep your bonus or any other selfish reason. How do you explain and help them see that it's for the benefit of everyone that we harvest the learnings and continue to use them? Well, you've touched on a really important point here, the hire to fit. Our work that we've been doing for over 20 years really is about culture. And underneath that is leaders and teams and how do you deal with anxiety and so on. If people don't get that, you know, they may never get it and that's not a good fit in your culture. Gary is, is very interesting. I don't know that he's ever fired anybody. Now, I could be wrong on that. My, my guess is, is that people self-select out of, and that's okay. They just can't work here. 
right? It's just not a good fit here. Chester, tell me, when you've worked with people, I'm sure you've encountered some people in your executive coaching. The tribal culture. You either get it or you or you don't. Now, you can coach people up and bring them along. There'll always be those people, though, that, that don't quite get it. Who you recognize are still resisting, are not looking to do this. Can you share an example without company names or, or violating any confidentiality about how that conversation goes so that it's not, this is a terrible situation, but we just need to find some place where it's better for the, the executive and better for the company. Well, sure. Our work is very research-based, so we're very careful to, to bring out the data, right, to appeal to the intellectual side of leaders and say, look, here's the data, here are the case studies, here's why it works. And then here's how you do it. Coach them up to say, look, here's what you need to start bit by bit. At first, it'll be you'll do it to just check the box, and that's fine. Hopefully, the more you do it, it'll become more of who you are. If the data doesn't resonate with you, if the case studies don't resonate with you. If those personal habits are just something you can't do, again, that's fine. We need to find a different place for you because this isn't going to work. Not everybody can play, you know, for the Yankees. Not everybody can play for the Montreal Canadiens. There are philosophies and cultures and you need to find that cultural fit. I will tell you a great success story that we had. And it was really interesting. What was his first name? Bill, <laughs> oddly enough. And it was really interesting with Bill. He really looked at this gratitude thing as being the soft side uh, and he was the hard side business. And we said, Bill, you know, you really do need to focus on your people more. And this gratitude is going to help you. We gave him a very simple challenge. We said, look, I know you're not buying into this. Trust me, write three handwritten thank you notes to your people every week for three weeks. Now, don't just write, say, hey, Frank, you did a great job. Thanks, Bill. Uh, be specific. Give it some thought. We gave him actually a little format on how to write a, a good handwritten note. A little template to help him see where he was doing well and where you can improve. Exactly. With him, it was almost like fill in the blank. I mean, it really, really easy for him. And he did it. So we checked back and we said, how did it go? And he says, you know, I actually was shocked. And she said, he said, you know, my assistant came up to me, said, you have no idea how much this meant to me. For years we've worked together and I've always felt like I did a good job. And yet I was never sure because I never got that affirmation. This simple thank you note meant the world to me. Thank you so much. He said, she was almost in tears. He said, you know, I have to admit I was wrong. This is a great first step. And he admitted, by the way, I'm not writing three a week anymore. I'm writing more. And it was a great awakening. So you do have that conversion moment. And sometimes it's as simple as write three thank you notes a week. That's really important because, of course, in order to write the three thank you notes, you have to pay attention to what people are doing well. You have to write it in the language and level of specificity that really makes a difference. And you've got to make sure that if it's handwritten, you're delivering it so that it gets there. And now we're mailing it. I hope that everyone doing listening to this interview today is thinking about how they could possibly reach out and what who would really appreciate a handwritten note, letting them know specifically specifically how that person's made a difference to the team and to themselves in order to build the relationship and add to your so they become something where people are more looking out for each other rather than just looking to manage their own interests. Exactly. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting because people will say, well, that's really old school. And I said, yes, it is. And the reason it has so much impact is because people don't do it anymore, right? It's that pink diamond, that rare thing. The thing that I found fascinating over the years is that people say, well, isn't it more timely to send a text or an email? I say, absolutely. And you should do that too. Handwritten notes are timely for this very reason. People take the time. They set aside the time to open it up. It's a quiet moment. It's a different conversation. It's one-on-one. -on -one. It's uninterrupted. I'll share a personal story. And what I love about our work is we say, don't just leave these best practices at work. 
take it home, use it in your personal life. There was a time when I had two of my children were in college at the same time. And I had a ritual where Sunday nights, I would write them a letter. It was just kind of my thing. And I enjoyed it. And it wasn't like we had a one-on-one correspondent. I'd write them once a week. They'd write me once every six to eight weeks. (laughs) I remember getting a letter back from my son, Brendan. It was really interesting. He said, Dad, I know I don't write you back as often as I should. He says, but I want to let you know how much your letters really mean to me. He said, when the the mail shows up and that orange envelope pops up, well, you know, because of the carrot principle, our color is orange. So, you know, there's a heads up, right? He says, when that orange envelope shows up, I don't always read it right away. And this is where it's timely. He said, sometimes I'll save it for when I'm having a tough and I'll read it then because I know after I read a letter from my dad, I'm going to feel better about myself. That was just so heartwarming. I'm always pleased when my kids come home from college, you know, they've got all their stuff and there's the stuff they keep and there's the stuff they throw away. They've never thrown away the box full of letters. And I've always found that to be very affirming and heartwarming. What an impact you can have. Do you see it's not just an impact in the moment. Your son actually chose to open it when he needed a booster. <laughs> and it's an effect that will have really have a ripple effect in his life and beyond because he's keeping the letters. He'll read them. He might even share them with his children someday. Isn't it funny? I mean, don't we all do that? We get a particular thing. I'm a big journal guy. I've, I have almost 50 journals now. When I get a really heartfelt note, I'll put it in my journal to make sure that I preserve it. How many of us have the, our attaboy file? You know, that little drawer where we throw all those thank you cards. When we're having a rough day, we open it up and go, well, on that day, I wasn't horrible. I wasn't terrible. I didn't suck. That day, I, I, I did something. That's nice. And I think that it's a practice where you can't say, I'm going to wait for somebody to send me a thank you note. You've got to take the initiative and say, I'm going to be the first one to send a thank you note. And by doing that, you change the culture. And by doing it consistently, I think, let me back up. I think when you first do it, you change someone's day. And if you build it into a habit where you're doing it, and maybe other people continue and pick up that practice, then you've changed the culture in your organization with that one simple act. That's the thing. It's repetition. You see how to build a tradition. Well, there's lots of traditions in the Catholic Church. Well, it took a couple thousand years. <laughs> you know, for that to happen. Might have happened sooner if they were speaking, in, not in Latin, but in English. <laughs> There, there's also that, Bill. The, the thing is, is we need to be patient and, and we need to give ourselves a little grace. You know, it takes time to build a culture. It does take time. And, and these things don't happen overnight. Well, hopefully we get a couple of positive affirmations early on that then keep the ball rolling. Be patient. Give yourself a little grace. I think it's important to recognize the power of words. We've talked about the importance of specificity, about situations, and delivering them in a way that the recipient really wants to hear. In the same way, the words we say in an unaware time or in a time when we're under stress can have a big negative impact. It really stands out. I think of one of the the most flagrant examples of that was Jerry Krause that was highlighted (laughs) in the Last Dance Netflix series where he said after the Chicago Bulls had won their sixth championship, he was asked by a reporter a question and he responded, players and coaches don't win championships, organizations do. And it just stood out. It was like, People weren't asking follow-up questions. It was like crickets. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Jerry would love to take that back. <laughs> we cite that story in the book as well, as you know. And it was really interesting as I, we were presenting on this. A guy did come up to us. He says, actually, I know Jerry Cross. He said, you know, he was feeling underappreciated. It was all about, you know, Jackson, the coach, and of course, Michael Jordan and the wonderful players they had on that team. And that was kind of his way of saying, hey, what about me? And it came out just wrong. The quote from Michael Jordan was, I don't remember Jerry being out on the floor and 
Utah with the flu and, you know, 101 degree temperature score and 35 points. I'm pretty sure that was me, you know. And so we've got to be careful with our words. It was interesting in my morning meditation yesterday, there was a great quote and it said, be kind with your words, be careful with your words because they do matter and you can lift people up or you can push people down. And don't we want the former, not the latter? He said, your words should go through three gates. And I love this philosophy. The first gate is, is it true? The second gate is it necessary? And the third gate is, is it kind? And if you can check those boxes that what I'm about to say is truthful, it's necessary, and I can deliver it in a kind way, I think you can avoid those Jerry Cross moments and and be more uplifting, even when you're having tough conversations. I, I love those three points, Chester. I think that people will benefit from applying those simple tests as to how they're going to present some feedback, especially unsolicited feedback, because this is the thing. We're venturing into an area of being proactive and sharing feedback, sharing ways that people have impacted us. That's one of the perhaps risky areas of gratitude. We were actually doing this. You say in your book, you and Adrian say it's important to not just leave gratitude at the office, but to bring it home. You talk about some of these ways of bringing it home. Why don't you share one of your favorite ways to bring gratitude home? It was really interesting, that part of the book. It's the very end. And we've always had that philosophy. When we wrote Leading with Gratitude, we had a new publisher, Harper Business, and they've been fabulous partners. So we put that ticket home at the end and we went to our publisher and said, gosh, you know, can we include this? Because all the great leaders that we interviewed, you know, Indra Noy from Pepsi and Alan Mulally and Gary Ridge, they all had practices that they they took home. Uh, and they said, absolutely, this will make the book very human. Of course, gratitude is something that should be a part of not just our work lives, but our personal lives. So uh, Dave Kirpin, who's a good friend of ours in Manhattan, he's got a wonderful digital uh, ad agency, had this great practice and we shared it in the book. And I just love it. He says, you know, our kids, we try to have dinner with them as often as possible. And we'd have the same conversation that parents all over America have every, every day at dinner. Kids would come home and say, how was school? Fine. What did you learn? Nothing. And he said, we got to change that dynamic. So he says, when you come to dinner, you've got to have three questions. You've got to answer three questions. The first one is, what was the best part of your day? Brag about your day. The second is, who are you grateful for who's not at the table? A teacher, a coach, a friend. And then the third one is, who are you grateful for who's at the table who hasn't been thanked yet? He said, at first, it was like, oh, dad you're always doing this kind of stuff. He says, and then the more we did it, the more it was our family and who we are. He said, I knew we'd broken through when my daughter brought a friend to dinner. And I could hear her saying before dinner, now listen, you got to answer three questions. Here are the three questions. Good answers. Yeah. Don't, don't embarrass me. I have three good answers. So you can have a lot of fun with it. You know, teach your kids how to serve, be of service. Never before has there been a need for us to look out for our neighbors, look out for our communities. And, and that's an expression of gratitude as well, isn't it? It's so true. And, and I've seen examples of that during the pandemic lockdown with people singing songs or leaving cookies on their neighbor's porches or things like that and just checking in with them. Hey, I'm going to the store. Can I pick you up anything? Simple ways to show that connection and community. So one of the things that you reminded me of as you were saying, talking about that and your personal practice and bringing it home is that it's a part of our own personal responsibility to assume positive intent which I think I've read in your book, it was attributed to Pepsi's former CEO, Andrew Noye. Can you share more about that perspective and how she thought about it and how she described it to you? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you asked about this because this probably is my favorite chapter in the book. I mean, I love to take it home as far as coaching leaders, to get leaders to assume positive intent. This idea that when something goes wrong, look for a solution as opposed to blame. And Andrew Noye talks about, she said, you know, when you assume positive intent, everything gets better. You're looking for 
for a solution. You're looking to solve the problem. When you assume negative intent, you're quick to blame. You're quick to say, how could you do this to me sort of thing? And you create a culture where it's not safe to admit that you've made a mistake. Gary Rich has that at WD-40. You know, Scott O'Neill, one of my favorite leaders who just retired as the CEO of HBSE, which owned the 76ers in the NBA and the Devils in the NHL. He said, you know, 99.9% of people come to work every day wanting to do a good job. And trying to do a good job, they're going to make mistakes. And that's okay. Let's fix the problem. Even Alan Mulally, the guy who saved the Ford Motor Company, said, look, uh, we have a problem. You are not the problem. Make it safe for people to say, hey, I screwed up. We got to fix this. I love assuming positive intent. Now, take it home. You know, Scott O'Neill is so interesting. As you leave his house above the back door where you go to take the kids to school, literally there's a cement block that says API. It's literally etched in stone <laughs> that we will assume positive intent about people. He said, listen, I don't get mad on the highway anymore. People cut me off and I think that guy's in a hurry. That guy's in a hurry. There's something going on. That guy needed to, and, and, and that's okay. I'm going to give him grace. It is such a wonderful philosophy to lead by. And it's such a wonderful philosophy to live by. I'm so glad you brought assume positive intent. I think that's really important to highlight how making this choice to assume positive intent to appreciate others creates a healthier body. It's not just, oh, this improves work and improves the bottom line, but it's selfishly good for each of us to maintain lower blood pressure, to maintain healthier vital signs because we're choosing our perspective and we're not being at the mercy of the world and situations around us. We're saying, I'm an adult, I'm educated, I understand how the world works, and I have choices that I can exercise every day. And one of those choices is my perspective. And I choose to have the perspective of assuming positive intent. I choose to have the perspective of people don't make screw-ups, they create learning moments, and let's see what we can approach them as. I choose to have the perspective that people don't know how much I appreciate them until I express it in specific ways, in ways that matter to them. So I really like that you bring that to the point. Of it's something that helps each of us individually as we're helping others. It's so interesting. I remember a conversation you and I had off, off mic about airlines and how much fun it is to fly these days, which of course it isn't. And yet here are people just trying as hard as they can to get their jobs done, to do it right, you know? And I, I always feel so badly for the gate agents when they say, hey, the flight's going to be delayed and everybody goes, ah, you see this collective growth. I've, I've gotten into a habit. I know this is just a podcast, but uh, the video part is I, I, I carry with me these little gratitude stones. It's so interesting. It's just a little stone and it has etched in it gratitude. And, and I always look, particularly when I'm at the airport for a gate agent, or maybe it's a flight attendant when they're doing their jobs. And I say, listen, I just want you to know how much I appreciate that you've showed up and you're doing your best. The airlines, because of the pandemic, have been so screwed up. You know, they've rerouted everybody and now every seat is full and you've got to wear your mask and people are unhappy. And I'll tell you, Bill, it is so amazing to me that when I go up and say, you know, I just want to thank you so much for you doing your job. You do it with a smile on your face as far as I can tell because it's behind your mask. I've got a little token for you. It's just this little gratitude stone. I hope it reminds you of how grateful I am for your service and that it'll bring you a little good luck. You know, Bill, I'm telling you, people light up. They go, I, I th thank you so much. And you've got to understand, I just gave them a rock. I mean, it's a rock. Like, I get that it says gratitude. At the end of the day, it's, it's a, a rock. pretty rock. I'll give Chester, it's a pretty rock. It's polished. It is. Yeah. The fact is, is these simple little random acts of kindness, which I think plays very well into assume positive intent. 
are such wonderful things. I, I love going up to the agent after someone has really just reamed them for no good reason and, and just to try to bring a smile to their face. These simple little things, simple niceties, simple courtesies go such a long way in creating a culture of gratitude and lifting people up. Give it a try. Let me ask you something. We'll figure out the logistics later. But anyone who will we'll have a drawing of the people who respond <laughs> to this interview the week that we, we release it and say, if you're listening to it during this week, we're going to send you a gratitude stone. And you and I will work that out. And I'll make sure that I ship it to them and I'll, I'll pay for everything. <laughs> Would you be willing to do that? Do you have a supply where you could do that? Sure. I tell people, they say, gosh, where did you get those? I said, well, you know, you can collect them up very carefully the side of the riverbank and polish them, polish them up and then engrave them very carefully and then put that gold leaf on it. Or you can go to Amazon and with two or three clicks, they'll send you 50 in a box. They're wonderful. I've chosen the latter. One of the other things that you and Adrian are known for is the extensive research that you do. You have a database of over 200,000 executives that was conducted for your company. They found that more grateful managers don't just create these nice moments. They actually produce bottom line metrics, including when you have a grateful manager who expresses it, they're up to two times greater profitability than their peers. There's an average of 20% higher customer service when the team's internally sharing gratitude. And it has significantly higher scores of employee engagement, including vital metrics like trust and accountability that make other things possible. This is really important. When you share this data with the companies that hire you to do coaching and leadership programs, what is their response when they see how dramatic the changes are from others who have adopted these practices and made them a part of their organization. It's, it's really interesting. It's truth, right? By the way, our database now is well over a million engagement surveys. You look at those, you look at those numbers and you think, if this doesn't convince you that this is the way you should conduct business, I don't know what will. And yet, you know, we get so caught up in our own paradigms, in our own ways of doing things. People will just not believe it. I just don't believe that. It. It's like, okay, that, that's your choice. I'm telling you though, if you look at, you know, the Alan and the Indra Noyes and the Ken Chenaults who we interviewed who just retired from American Express and, and the Gary Ridges. It absolutely works. And and not only are those the numbers, here's how you do it. So again, there are people that will look at that and be converted and say, you know what? I know that we need to make a change. I think we can do this. And then there'll be others that no matter what you tell them, say, look, this is the way we've done it. We've always done it this way. And we're going to do it until the day we die. Then I always add, or until you go out of business, which is probably more likely. The environment can certainly affect change and, and make create the conditions for the people who are the fence sitters to choose to engage in the practice and benefit from it, especially when all the other people around them are starting to do it that way. Exactly. So when you speak with managers week in and week out, what would you say is the single tangible change that can be observed when gratitude is really taking root in their culture? You know, Bill, that's such a, an insightful question because... Uh, when we present, we share a lot of personal stories with people. There still are so many managers that say, look, this is business, this is life. And they try to separate their business life from their personal life. When we pull out personal experiences, like the story I shared with you about writing a letter to my son at, at the university, or we talk about personal experiences, just interacting with a flight attendant or something. Then we get into how do you interact with your kids and your spouses and your partners and the people that you love the most. It's interesting that they'll often get it on the personal side. And then we say, okay, well, translate that to the business side. We, we, we have a fun little exercise. Well, I'll pull somebody up out of the audience and we talk about the frequency of gratitude. 
attitude. Say, can you overdo it? Can you do it so much that it becomes trite? I'll raise your hand. And somebody, yeah, you can overdo it. And then I say, how many people do you think in your business go home at the end of the day and said, I got too much gratitude today. I couldn't get anything done. It was a cake, it was a party, it was a balloon. I said, so I ask him, I said, who here is madly in love? I said, you don't have to answer, but I hope you will. And they raise their hands. Happy, you know, madly in love and happily married. And I'll pull somebody up and I'll say, great. What's your name? What's your, what's your partner's name? How long have you been married? How often do you tell them that you love them? And they say, oh, multiple times a day. I said, really? Multiple times a day, 365 days a year. So we're talking a couple of thousand times a year. They go, oh yeah. And I'll say, you know what? I think that's too much. I really do. It's not efficient. How many times do you have to tell them before they believe you? Wouldn't it be better if instead of all this, like, I love you, I love you, I love you, and anniversaries and Valentine's Days, come on, the birthdays, that's way too much to keep track of. What if we just had a year-end banquet, and at the end of the year, nice dinner, nice bottle of wine, couple of shrimp on the barbie, and you said, I love you, and you really meant it once a year. How would that work for you? They go, yeah, that's not. So no, it wouldn't be, would it? See, I love you in your personal life translates to thank you in the workplace. And if you do it right, you can't hear it too much. Now, I always point out, be very careful. Remember. It's I love you in your personal life. It's just thank you in the workplace. If you get that mixed up, HR is going to be all over you. <laughs> it's going to cause them all kinds of problems. That would be a problem. Yeah. And, and so to your point, once we get the personal side straight and easy to understand, right? Then it becomes a little easier for them to say, okay, now I can translate. And sometimes that works. That's great. I was also thinking about the description of the once a year banquet where you tell someone you love them is often how companies approach their annual reviews. <laughs> yeah, that's why it resonates because everybody goes, oh man, that's exactly what we do. <laughs> Chester, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Absolutely. Let's have at it. What aspect of appreciation do you find comes easiest for you? And what's one that you have to remind yourself to practice? You know, the one that comes easiest for me is is just kind words. I think that's what comes easiest to me, uh, putting a smile on people's face by complimenting them, noticing their good work. The one that I have to remind myself to do, and it's so funny because we talked about it, is to write handwritten notes. I had gotten out of the habit, and then it was so funny, a friend of mine sent me a hundred thank you notes. <laughs> I thought that was the universe talking to me. Beautiful photos of upstate New York in the fall and a dock on a lake. I thought, that's the universe telling you, Chester, you need to be writing more thank you notes. So that's the one I need to remind myself yourself up. This study has been part of your life for 25 years. Who was a manager who stands out in your mind as someone who shared appreciation with you effectively and what kind of impact did it have? Yeah. You know, my first manager in business, Teddy Pierce, I worked for Player Television and I, I got a job in Detroit, Michigan. And he was my first boss. And, and Teddy was just the best. He made work so much fun. I mean, we had an office softball team. You know, we, we went to lunch and dinner all the time. And, and Teddy just really reassured me that even though I was new, my voice mattered, my opinions mattered. I'll never forget when I, I got the job, he, he called me with what was going to be my annual salary. Now, I was selling Bibles door to door every summer to pay my way through college and, and was pretty good at it and actually made good money. It was so funny because prorated the, the, the salary in my first year was actually going to be less than what I could make, literally selling Bibles door to door. And he kind of apologized for it. And I said, Teddy, I want you to know how grateful I am for this job and the chance you're giving me. This is going to be the, the, the best return on investment you've ever had. And he, and he was really appreciative of that. And I'll tell you that the way Teddy managed his office and the way he made us all feel great every day 
was the roadmap for me for the rest of my career. I think that first manager is so important. And you're reminding me, I'm going to write his name down. I need to track down Teddy Pierce and tell him that today. <laughs> I bet that would make his day for you to reach out. I really do. To bring it home, and I'm going to come back to that because it's such an interesting area. There are a couple aspects of expressing appreciation that I think are important to cover in this way. Sometimes when you say to people, be excited. That's one of the recommendations. Actually bring your energy up and be excited to show people at home that you're glad to be with them. And I'm sure at work, open with energy. You and I have that kind of a natural vibe. I think there are people who work day in and day out and don't express that. They don't have that energy tapped in. And they might say, well, I can't do that. That would be being fake or it's just too hard. How do you help people get to the point where they're expressing that energy that really makes an impact when they reach out and connect with others. Yeah. You know, we talk about that. We say, look, so often we leave our best selves at work. Don't do that. You know, and now, you know, if you're in a hybrid situation, you're coming home from work, maybe just walking through the door of your office. When you see your family, be excited to see them. You know, we often say, you know, I work so hard so I can provide for my family. Great. When you see your family, do they know that? <laughs> you know, are you excited to see them? It was a great reminder for me just yesterday. I was re recording a podcast and we were talking about this and my grandkids had come over and I thought, you know what, when I walk through the door, I'm going to be excited to see them. I'm going to let them know, you know, Clara, uh, Lucas, this is your pop-up and he's excited to see you. So bring that energy. And conversely, you know, if you're going into the office now, when you see your coworkers, don't start the day with that grumble and your coffee and, you know, talk to me after I've had four cups. Say, hey, isn't it great to be together again? Those simple little things of bringing that energy make such a difference to start your day right, keep your day moving, and end your day. I love leaders that say, hey, thanks so much for coming in today. Today was a good day. You also encourage people to embrace the obstacles, to be grateful for the obstacles that occur. Now, that seems really counterintuitive to someone encountering that idea for the first time. What are some of the objections that people raise when you encourage them to do that as a way to lead with gratitude? Yeah, I think through the pandemic, very few people are saying, hey, send me more problems. <laughs> you know, just one pandemic, we come on, I can handle two, three, four. The fact is, is that when when we would interview great leaders and we do it on an ongoing basis, tell us about your career. They always tell us about the hard time. And why do they tell you about the hard times? Because that's where they learn the most. So if you step back and take that perspective, you say, okay, I get that these are hard times. Again, like WD-40, what are we learning? How is this making me better? It's the refiner's fire, whatever metaphor you want to use. So when problems come up, we really should be grateful for them because it's going to help to define who we are, how we learn, how we grow, and how we develop. It's a hard concept. And yet when you step back, you kind of think, well, sure, if I, if I never had hard times. Remember the biosphere? I love this story. The biosphere, I think it was at uh, Arizona State University or Arizona University, where they tried to create this environment because they wanted to see, could we put this on the moon? You know, Could people survive in such a limited environment? environment. Well, they planted all these trees and everything. The trees started to fall over because there was no resistance. They didn't have to put down deep roots. You look at the magnificent sequoias and stuff. Why are they so strong? Because they're tested. So let's be grateful for the tests. That's great. And with that perspective, it makes it so much easier to take on this third one, which I love is to thank the cranks. <laughs> <laughs> Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, again, it's around assume positive intent. You know, sometimes people are just having a bad day and you just give them grace. And you want to turn a crank around, go up and say, hey, listen, 
thanks for, so much for showing up today. I know it was a hard day for all of us. And just you showing up meant the world to me. And it's so interesting. You know, Marshall Goldsmith wrote the foreword to the book. And one of the things that, that he said that really stuck with me is he said, you know, no matter who you are, and he says, I've talked to captains of industry, the Dalai Lama and guys in the street. And the one thing we all have in common is we all just want to be happy. Even the cranks, trust me, they want to be happy. And if you can do a little something to brighten their day, assume positive intent, you know, greet them with a smile, thank them for a simple thing. I'm always amazed how quickly you can turn those cranks around because even the cranks showed up. You know, even the cranks, are, you know, and it did a little something to move the ball forward today. And you should thank them for that. And you know what? It does. It works. You'll put a smile on their face. I promise. It makes such a difference to have these perspectives, these stories, and these ideas in mind that you share in your book, Leading with Gratitude. Chester Elton, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on My Quest for the Best, where you've shared such great ideas, starting with the idea of what gratitude is and how it's a counter to a lot of the anxiety we feel at work, the importance of assuming positive intent, the idea that gratitude needs to be expressed often with specificity and with energy. <laughs> Absolutely. Bill, it's always a pleasure to be with you. You always bring such a positive attitude. You are a guy that leads with gratitude. You can call me anytime. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks. And Chester, before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it we can find out more about you and your work online? Go to thecultureworks.com. Adrian and I have a wonderful training company. Follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our gratitude journal. On the show notes, we're going to make it so easy for people to find out all the things that you're up to by pointing to your gratitude work, the Culture Works company, all of your social media, and of course, links to buy the book, Leading with Gratitude, and all of the other 14 books that you've got, as well as new ones that come out. So Chester Elton, co-author of Leading with Gratitude, The Eight Leadership Practices for Extraordinary Business Results. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.